0: Welcome to the Martially Motivated Podcast. I am your host Dan Burrell of Burrell Martial Arts here in Wilmington, North Carolina. And on today's episode, I have a guest, Andrew Hobart. Uh, he runs the the Burrell Martial Arts in Newcastle, Wyoming. Uh, he was a student of my brothers uh, for years, so um, I had him on, and we discussed uh, a lot of different topics. Uh, as usual, we, we get into uh, quite a few different topics uh, on this episode, and on the podcast about our experiences in martial arts, uh, past uh, instructors, and what we like, what we don't like. Uh, we discussed uh, you know, egos in martial arts and uh, some of the material that we go through in our program, so uh, a wide variety of topics. Uh, in this podcast, there, there was a couple spots that got dropped during the, uh, the recording, Um, I've gone back and uh, tried to remember some of the things and uh, clean up some spots in there, but uh, hopefully it doesn't distract you if there's a a weird outage (laughs) in that thing. But uh, for the most part, we got everything in there, so I hope you enjoy a fourth-degree black belt in Taekwondo, a third-degree black belt in Hapkido. And when did you start uh, Shotokan?
1: Uh, So, that's... I don't have a clear-cut answer to that question. I was either five or six years old. I don't remember which. um, I started actually with kind of a locally famous studio that taught just generic karate right Mm -hmm. like that's that's what it was called and there wasn't there wasn't really a lot even even now as i try to go back and look into it there's not a lot beyond just kind of the copy paste term karate Mm -hmm. right in the school that i started at um when i was a little bit younger than that even um and i don't i don't I was too young. I don't remember the circumstances that led to me stopping. But, um, yeah, I, I'm, it's, we'll safely
0: say six years old. How's that? Gotcha. <laughs> and your parents just put you in it, I assume, and to, uh, you know, correct you. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was born uh, with cancer in my eyes. I only have one eye. I'm legally blind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and,. Uh, my my dad, in particular, thought it was important that I have some form of of self-defense training, first of all, mm-hmm. because, you know, growing up in rural Nebraska with a fake eye, it's like walking around <laughs> with a target on your back that says, kick me. <laughs> um, so I think that's where it started, but also the mental discipline, right, because, mm-hmm. um, there was a lot that we didn't know about how how the radiation treatment for my cancer and stuff you know in my head was going to
0: affect like my social skills and mental discipline and that kind of thing. So yeah. I think I think that both of those aspects had a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. Now, did uh, have you noticed any like depth perception issues with uh, training in martial arts that you know whether it's dealing with punches or strikes of any kind? Is that uh, it's hard to you know, uh, compared to others that do, because you've had it so for so long, but have you noticed anything like that? Um, if I did notice it, it was, I mean, ages ago, right? Yeah. Um, because, like you said, um, I I had I got my first fake eye for my first birthday, right? <laughs> my 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 cancer affected me and has affected me in the same capacity for literally longer than I can remember. Yeah. So. I think my brain
1: kind of figured out how to deal with that. I do have uh, a pretty severe lack of depth perception, um, but I've kind of
0: worked around it. I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah. Because I don't, I don't notice it in my daily life, and I train every day. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've got two good eyes, and I still have crappy depth perception. <laughs> There's a reason why I didn't play outfield in baseball. Stick them at third base. No pop ups but <laughs> i think everyone's got something to deal with <laughs> so now if you, are you still training uh w- with karate or did when you switched over you stop? technically techniques are the same but you know as far as traditionally uh officially training karate have you stopped that or is it something you're still doing
1: no i don't train it anymore um when when master roskins uh i, I don't even know if you actually know that story um when I got into doing Taekwondo with Mike, I was already a second degree black belt in Taekido, and Master Roskins found out about my, uh, my karate experience. And then he ranked transferred me over to Taekwondo at fourth degree. And then I just started with the white belt material and mm. relearned everything. Yeah. <laughs> so, yep. Um, and, and you're right. The techniques are the same, and what's funny is
0: between Shotokan and uh, the forms that we use now compared to our old AMAF forms, mm-hmm. um, I learned both. Yeah, and the Shotokan forms that we or that I learned anyway are almost identical. Like some of the lower ranks, like the white, orange, yellow belt forms, mm-hmm. there's very little difference between them and the lower rank forms in Shotokan. Oh yeah, yeah. It was uh, directly taken from it there's no doubt about it General Choi was Shotokan uh, black belt uh, I think second degree and so he just took that material and ran with it adjusted it down the road and that's where you see a lot of the adjustments are actually in black belt Uh, and that's because that's what he developed uh, more than anything and adding in the kicks later on so all that color belt uh, material uh, is very much karate oriented Uh, that's why there's very few kicks in there early on but uh, the big difference uh, and this is more for me I, I don't think Mike really does this and I know a lot of studios don't do it which is the sine wave which a lot of a lot of places non- taekwondo will use it and they just don't know they're using it but uh, a lot of the what we do or what I do sometimes it's very obvious most of the time it's pretty subtle uh, it's in the you see it in the form so but I know mike hates it (laughs) so he doesn't do it but which makes it it the same as karate (laughs)
1: it's funny that such a small difference is you know in the way that you apply it practically and the way that you teach it right Mm -hmm. Um, how how much of a difference it really makes for being to a person that doesn't maybe fully grasp what the point is yeah Um, how much of a difference that really makes? Because the the sine wave stuff. I wish I had learned it more prominently when I was first learning all of these taekwondo forms. Because it, I mean, I mean, you can you can feel the difference when you're you know bag training or board breaking or whatever whatever kind of training you happen to be doing on any given day. Yeah. Uh, it, it actually makes a huge difference in your power level and mm-hmm. your precision level too. I, I think I think one of the most overlooked things with the sine wave techniques is that your accuracy is actually quite a bit higher when you take you know that fraction of a second to make sure that you're optimizing the movements.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a lot behind it, and it's uh, that too. Some people don't use it early on because it can get complicated to explain, and when it's done incorrectly, it looks like crap and it just doesn't work right. But this was uh, the first dropout of uh, the podcast. Now, I was discussing sine wave, uh, and I don't even remember what I was saying. I was probably just ranting on something, but uh, it was just talking about sine wave and the power generation that uh, Taekwondo uses. Uh, and that was about it. I, I don't think there's much else to this, but it'll get into uh, a little bit more here in just a moment. So sorry for that break. At Brown Belt for what I'm doing anyway because of the board breaks. And that's when we start doing, you know, for testing board breaks. And if you apply that sine wave to board breaks with the right technique, uh, it, you know, I've got 12-year-olds that break two boards, you know, it, just because it, it, it's such an easy transfer of power that way compared to muscling through it which maybe they'd break one board in that regard so I I wish more people would put effort into it and understand it and not just go oh it's wavy and bouncy I don't want to do it (laughs) oh I I mean it's it's a requirement when I when I uh, when I teach I I I didn't I mean, I knew about it, right, coming up through the ranks in Shotokan. I, I didn't ever know what it was called. We just, you know, it was just part of our movements. I didn't know that it was separate from things that other people did. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't really until I started training, you know, because, I mean, I'm the same rank as Mike in in uh, Taekwondo, or I will be, uh, I'm up for testing in like two months Yeah. after that testing Mike and I will be the same rank in Taekwondo and he won't be eligible to promote me anymore so mm-hmm. I always tell everyone you're my black belt instructor we've never <laughs> met in person but you're my black belt instructor <laughs> and it wasn't until I started you know paying really close attention to the feedback from you that I kind of really understood the separation between the technique with and without the sine wave and I just teach it that way now because I think the the difference is so night and day that the the earlier you start Mm -hmm. figuring the concept of sine wave out the more practically applicable it is yeah it, is. it becomes natural, just like anything. The, the more you train it, the more you don't have to think about it. And when you don't have to think about it, the power comes out naturally. And if you wait too long and try and do it later on, it's going to take a lot longer to out train what you were doing before, where you're using more muscle to, to throw power. And that can be a, a headache to deal with as an instructor down the road. 100%. 100%. My dog wants to be in this, uh, in this episode of the podcast. Sorry about that. <laughs> as long as he's not swearing. <laughs> right, right, right. Now, you, with uh, when did you start doing the Hapkido? You did that before you were doing Taekwondo, right?
1: Uh, yeah, I started doing Hapkido with Mike my, uh, my sophomore year of college.
0: Gotcha. What uh, What year was that? Oh, two thousand and eleven, probably two thousand twelve. Okay, it, it, it would have been it would have been late two thousand eleven. I think it was before we it was before the new program got implemented. Like that's what I was wondering. Go, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it, our new program was super well refined, but I loved our old program too. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, you know I, I went back and forth on that do you know much about our Hupkido system, like where it came from and what we've done with it? Well, I know we,
1: we started, or at least it was based
0: off of the
1: IKHF, right?
0: Yeah, the Mike and I got our black belts and started, well, eh, we, we started training in combat Hupkido. That was what we were doing. Uh, yeah. And that switched, I believe... I think it was right before I got my black belt. I think Mike might have gotten his black belt through them, but uh, pretty close to it. So, and I, I love that system. Like I, I still, you know, want uh, follow uh, Pellegrini and his material and get anything I can from because they they really uh, expanded on it. And they keep expanding. That's what, that's what I love about that system is they didn't just sit on it and go, "Okay, this is the way it is. We're done." That every time every couple of years I'll see something new that they implemented or adjusted, uh, and I I, I love that approach to it. And it was just, I think it was, unfortunately, something political (laughs) with uh, Pellegrini and uh, uh, Master um, Brooks, uh, from what I understand, but uh, I don't know the the specifics of that. But that's what we had started in, and we adjusted from there. And we, uh, uh, Master Hilden, Made some adjustments to it around the time that I did before I did, and implemented some stuff back into it from you know more traditional aikido and then just some more taekwondo style stuff with like the kicks and punch defenses. Uh, But uh, I was always playing with it and making some adjustments. And I finally uh, I got frustrated with constantly trying to memorize everything, (laughs) so I condensed it into the core material that we have now and uh, just changed it. Uh, I didn't really ask anybody. I I don't know if Roskins was doing anything with it. Um, I don't think he was, but uh, I sent it to Mike, let him know if he wanted to change it or not, but I, I think he's doing that now, uh, and it's just a more simplified way of getting more information and training more scenarios. So it's, uh, it's a, it's a fun, fun art, even the very traditional stuff. I, I've worked with a lot of hapkido uh, traditional styles uh, in hapkido, and the depth of joint lock knowledge that they have, uh, I've slowly picked up over the years because there's stuff that in combat hapkido we kind of glanced over to kind of get to the point and didn't work as much with it. But it's uh, it's fascinating. I love hapkido. You know, it is. And I think just in an effort to, you know, kind of condense stuff and simplify it and make it, you know, easier to sort more than anything. Mm. What you've done is stumbled on to probably the most effective teaching method as far as concept mastery that I have ever come across in my entire career. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me toot your own over for you. You know, when we, when we take a look at as opposed to, here's a list of techniques that you get at this rank, uh, memorize them, and perform the vent testing. You know, we do this concept stuff now, and you, like you said, the core techniques. And I think what that allows for is, at least in my experience, once you've gotten, you know, orange-green belt under your under your credentials or whatever you want to call it um, when you really start getting kind of the overarching philosophy right mm-hmm. use as little of your own motion as you as you need, right yeah. energy conservation centrifugal force that circular you know ebb and flow of movement if it was what you meant to do, Mm -hmm. but I think you stumbled onto one of the most effective teaching methods I've ever experienced. It, uh, you know, there was a couple things behind it. Uh, For one, we don't have this in the system anymore, Uh, at least not officially. Uh, It still may pop up when you're doing situational stuff, but uh, we would have, like, armpit grabs. (laughs) And just some bizarre stuff, like Really? <laughs> and we had to learn right. all the same stuff again. So the, the arm bar, we learned it and I think at the time, it was orange or yellow belt, one of the two, and that was the first time we did an arm bar. And then, you know, every rank there was an arm bar of some sort, but it was like, okay, now do the arm bar from a shoulder grab. Now do it from a hair grab. Now do it from an armpit grab. And so you're going years and years and going, okay, I'm pretty sure I can do this from any grab? Why do I have to keep memorizing different positions for this one? And that—that that was the the first piece of the puzzle for me of going. I need to condense this. Like it doesn't make sense to constantly memorize stuff. That's just too much. You know the the core elements of Hub Keto can be condensed into like twenty movements. It, I, you don't need six thousand that traditionally is in the program because it's all the same stuff. And one thing I found. It was when I was still in Nebraska teaching. Uh, I had a student, I um, can't remember his name off right off hand, but he was one of the oldest black belts I ever promoted. He was uh, 65 when I started training him, and it took him a while to get his black belt, but he got there. But uh, he, when he was going through his material, this was before anything changed, he had to look at the piece of paper before he, he could remember it even though it was stuff we've been doing forever. And if I said just do an arm bar, no matter what grab was in there, he could do it. But to remember the specific arm bar that we needed, he had to look at that paper and it was driving me nuts. I'm like, sure. So, you know, I condensed some stuff, but just by naming things differently. But then eventually I was just tired of all the memorization of different positions and like just learn it once and then do it from everywhere. And, drill the crap out of it because that's all that matters is you're going to figure it out if you understand the core concepts and principles of the different where your hand needs to be here and here and where your body needs to be never changes so you can adjust on the fly and that's what you need to do in a fight anyway so uh, that's what needs to be done and that's kind of the those two pieces were the biggest catalyst to getting it changed Uh, it was frustration (laughs) more than anything especially as a, a teaching side of it uh, which I, the, having to memorize, like if I started teaching somebody, uh, let's say, Purple Bell, I couldn't just start teaching them stuff. I had to go grab the, the sheet and the book and go, okay, let's see, what was number one here? All right, that, that one there, okay, I know this one. And let me read this, and let me read that, and then I'll go teach it. And it didn't matter how many years I was doing it, I had to look at that paper every time just to remember, because the little things oh we need to throw a kick here but on this one we need to slap them in the face instead like that was the only difference and so now i don't need to look at the sheets at all it's very rare that i pull out one of those uh, material sheets to see what the material is it's just i know what the core concepts are let's just drill it and then every so often i'll add in the, the specialty ones that are a little bit different that don't fall under that category but uh it makes it so much easier as a teacher, makes it easier as a student, even though it may take longer to an extent, because you got to drill it over and over and not just regurgitate it. you got to know it on a deeper level. So those are the things that really triggered everything and got me changing that system. But out of respect for traditional Aikido, I had to change the name. Uh, so it's, it seems like I created a new art, which I did not at all. <laughs> it's all the same stuff. It was the the training method, the way we teach it. That is what I changed and developed. So, uh, for anybody uh, listening that wonders why I have a different name to Keto, <laughs> that is why. It's it's out of respect for uh, traditional Keto, not because I think I'm so great. I made my new new art form here. <laughs> oh boy, yeah, no, and and I just you know I I was. Uh I think that we we implemented the new, or I did. Um, I think Mike started it shortly after I did. Um, when I was getting ready for second degree, I believe that the new program got kind of officially, and not the new program is a weird way to say that. Mm-hmm. I think the new the new implementation methods um, got implemented probably. Six eight months after I got first degree in Aikido, so I had the benefit of of experiencing both systems, both yeah. as a student and an instructor. Right, I came up through all of the colored belts. Uh,
1: to be, and Mm -hmm. so I kind of just started over, I took a little break.
0: to be with you know I've, I've told my students this as well uh, I want my students to be better at me at every level and that's always been the driving factor because I I I didn't like I hate to say didn't like I wasn't proud of my first degree black belt in Hapkido. Taekwondo I was uh, but I was also a third degree in hapkido at the time I learned to appreciate everything Hapkido, my first degree testing was very bland I, and I didn't have the the luxury of having um, a partner that I knew. You know, It was under Master Brooks and had to go down to Columbus for that one. And so I just got partnered up with people that didn't know me, didn't care about me. And I was, man, 16, 17. They were, like, 30, and I was a rag doll for them to throw around. <laughs> and, it like, nothing I was doing was working. They were resisting 100%. I'm like, oh, damn it. Why <laughs> like, is this not... Going, but I got a few things off. I was able to demonstrate enough, and uh, it, it was. And this was the the very first time I ever had done a board break too. I was, you know, at the time we didn't have any board breaking in, in Hapkido, uh, and oh, interesting, I had gone down there. Luckily, I, I had done one year of Taekwondo to begin with. So I was advanced green, I believe, green advanced green somewhere around there uh, in Taekwondo when I had gone into Hapkido because I wasn't old enough when I first uh, started at uh, the under uh, Roskin's there at the North Fork School, and I so I had to start with Taekwondo and kind of prove myself to get into hapkido But uh, at testing, I'd gone through all my material for joint locks and throws and whatnot. And towards the end, Master Brooks is like, uh, "I'm going to have you do two board breaks." and of course the sweat starts pouring oh no never, I don't even know how to set up these board breaks I've never stared at a board break before I don't know what I'm doing and he's like I'll give you the easy ones just do a side kick and an elbow strike and I'm like okay I think I can I can do this I know both those techniques I got power in this and put them both up, broke the, the elbow and I sucked at the side kick and I didn't understand why and you know, I'm watching, you know, taekwondo when at testings. It was always you get three attempts and then go sit down if you don't break it. You come back in a two or three months, whatever it may be. And, you know, I, I missed the first one. And it's like, do it again. I'm like, okay. And I'm throwing everything I have at this thing. I am all but jumping at it and throwing my heel into it. I'm, I'm hitting dead center with it. Everything I have, all 125 pounds of me at the time. And it's just going thud. I'm like, I don't understand what I'm doing wrong. And I, third try, thud. And I'm just deflated. And he's like, all right, line up. And at the end testing, uh, did you ever do any uh, testings under Master Brooks at all? Uh, No, I've never even met him. Gotcha. Okay, so, um, at his testings, he always did the big, like every black belt had to go through him, essentially. And, uh, I liked it. I, I I've always respected him. He, he's a hard ass, but he's a damn good instructor. And uh, but he's tough. And at the end of every testing, he would tell you some good things, some bad things, and you know give you some uh, some motivation to an extent. Uh, unless the testing was awful, he would say it. He's like, "You guys are terrible. Why are you here?" <laughs> so he'd be honest with you. Uh, but usually it was something nice and, you know, something to think about for next testing in the next class, but, uh, he had talked about some stuff and he looked over at me and he's like, okay, I know you weren't expecting board breaks, but you got to expect everything. Like this is your black belt testing. It's like, I'm going to give you one more chance after we line up and bow out. You're going to, I'm going to let Roskins give you one piece of advice and you got one more shot. I'm like, oh, jeez, okay, I didn't expect that, so yeah, 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 and Broskin said, uh, slow it down, it's like, just step and break it, you're like, jumping into it, and you're leaning back, and it's like, keep your weight balanced, and move your hips and your body through the kick, don't jump into it, step and plant, and just kick in the center, easy, and so it set up the boards, did that, I swear I put 10% of the power I was putting into it before, and board shattered. And I, I, I didn't understand at the time. It took me uh, quite a while to figure out what happened there, but it was just the fact that I was leaning backwards as I was jumping, pulling all my power away from that kick instead of going through it. But uh, that's all he told me to do, and it, it broke. So, one, I learned always listening to Roskins. And uh, <laughs> But two, it, I was still, even though I ended up passing that testing, I was just not overly proud of it. I thought I, thought I did terrible. And ever since then, I'm like, I can't it, I can't let my students feel that way after their black belt testing. And it wasn't until almost third degree that I started to feel like I was worthy of being a black belt. And even then, there was I saw errors everywhere, but I felt like I was solid, at least on the basics. And so I, I changed quite a bit with how I test for my black belts. And again, I don't know what Mike's doing right now. Uh, I'm not sure what you're doing, but uh, I don't promote very often to black belt, but when I do, usually the first word out of the student's mouth after we're done is, oh, shit, that was the toughest thing in my life ever. <laughs> and yeah, that, that's what I wanted. And they're like, I can't believe I did that. I, if you would have told me this is what I had to do to get my black belt when I first walked in, I'd have walked right back out. It, I would have said, not possible and so that, that's the, the impact uh, that I'm trying to get with my students uh, and I, I know everything I've talked about with you, you're doing the same thing is make them better than us and that's the, the end result, whatever that may be we just need to make them better than us Yeah, I mean
1: well, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack there because uh, in my career I've had I've had some... Because, I, I mean, I, I, I hold black belt ranks outside of pro martial arts as well. Mm-hmm. And it's... Uh, I, there's good instructors and there's not-so-good instructors and then there's hot dumpster fire instructors and mm-hmm. I've, had, I've had the whole gambit. And uh, it's, you know... At the end of the day, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for the bad instructors that I did have, right? Because... Yeah. Nothing, nothing does a better job of showing you the right way to do something than being told for five years the wrong way to do it. Yeah. And so I'm glad that I could take that hit and <laughs> suffer a little bit so that my students can have a better learning experience in some regards than I did. Yeah. Um. But yeah, at the end of the day, you know, I I, I start telling my students, you know, at White Belt. You're a better white belt than I ever was, right? Mm-hmm. And when you're a second degree black belt, you're gonna be three times the second degree black belt that I ever was, you know, and that's that's what we want. Because if if martial arts doesn't have room to adapt to the times that you're learning them in, right? Like I mean I, I, I respect tradition and I respect, you know, the the history of a technique, right? And where it came from what it was used for in, you know, the 1800s for, for, you know, a farmer trying to save his his life when mm-hmm. his, you know, property was under
0: attack or whatever the case may be. Uh, I, I respect all of that, but there's something to be said about a lot of martial arts being unwilling to adapt to the times and grow with the society that their practitioners live in. Um, yeah. And I just I think that's really important, and I want to provide an experience for my students that that reflects that you know that is relevant to the to the life and the world that they live in. Yeah, it has to change. It's you know I've been doing a lot of research for my next book and the diving into history, in particular. Right now, I'm in Okinawan history. Cause that's essentially where all karate started, uh, even though a lot of that came from China and influence. But you know, actual karate that we know it today really developed in Okinawa. And one of the things I read about some of the early instructors was th- some elements are never supposed to change, like the forms, their kata. They want that to be the same. So a lot of those kata really haven't changed in over a hundred years, but one of the first things they say right after that is, everyone's different, we need to adjust material for them and so everything's adjustable, and they, they knew that at the time, and the the problem is, for anybody that's listened to uh, some of my podcasts with Brent, I think one of the, the last ones last two, something like that, we had talked a little bit because uh, Brent knows uh, Okinawan. He, uh karate, he's, he's great with that stuff, he knows the history of it, and um, he said the same stuff that uh, they quickly, when, when it got to the United States, it was usually through military. And one of the things he brought up is most military, when they're stationed somewhere, it's not that long. It could be six months, it could be two years. And so these instructors in Okinawa wanted them to uh, get this art out there. So they quickly advanced them, some to black belt, some to six-degree black belt in, you know, potentially two years and sent them off and said, this is the way it is. And so they didn't get all the information. And they missed a lot. And now in the States, it's done somewhat differently. Then, thankfully, with the Internet, things have kind of come full circle. And, you know, I, I know for me, looking at techniques that, I had learned, let's say as a yellow belt in Hokkido or Taekwondo, at the time, I didn't know I was doing it wrong. I was just mimicking what I was told to do, and I didn't ask a lot of questions. And now, years later, I'll see something that is very similar in an Okinawan-style form or in a jiu-jitsu and go, oh, that's what that was for. I didn't realize that. So just seeing my own ignorance on that type of stuff, you, you know that's going to be littered everywhere in what we do. And so for people to say that it can't change, it it's just, again, ignorance that it, it has to change, but we have to understand where it came from before we change it. And that's where the, the difficulty comes in. It's very easy to look at a technique and go, well, that sucks, let's not do it. But do you really know what it's for? But technology changes cultural changes there's so many things that need to be adjusted and you know the the big thing about the United States is we want it now <laughs> we don't want to wait that 8 years to get that black belt and you have to like it's just there you can get it for you know there's places well uh, even here in town uh, and I know there's some back in Nebraska as well that you can get it in a year if you pay enough money and you suck, but you to applaud yourself and feel happy and then get your ass kicked when you go into a fight if you have to. So it's it's a very complicated uh, topic of how to change things, when to change things, and th- that's why I changed the, the teaching method and not the techniques because I don't know enough about the techniques to say this is wrong or this isn't going to work. You know, Over time, I've learned some things do better than others, but that's off my own knowledge, not off of what it was intended for, potentially. So I think that's where the biggest changes can come about is how we teach it and helping students uh, navigate the the mistakes that we've made along the the way so that we can help skip over some of the mistakes and speed it up so that they can understand things a little bit deeper level. Yeah, well, it's so... (laughs) a lot to unpack in what you just said like um, I'm, I'm gonna have to go back when, when this episode comes
1: out and, and listen to that again because you made a lot of really really interesting points there um, but you know and uh, I worked for 27 years to get where I'm at you know what I mean mm-hmm. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of frustration in me for for schools or instructors or whatever the case is that that get handed things. You know yeah. like martial arts is not it's not a practice where you do anyone any favors by giving them something that they didn't earn. Yeah. And I uh, I don't know, man, it's just it's so frustrating thinking about going somewhere for two years with you know simplistic basic obviously combat knowledge in, in one way or another and coming back home as a fourth fifth sixth degree black belt man mm-hmm. that just grinds my gears because I I mean it took me how old am I 30, I'm 31 so it took me 25 years uh to get my 6th degree black belt in and that's a lot of long, that, that's long hard training especially you know when you start as a kid if it's not something you're if it's not something that's born instilled into your DNA you know with dragons especially like how hard is it to keep a 6 year old focused for a, for a, for a full <laughs> hour of training <laughs> yeah not so much. If it's, if it's not somebody who wanted to grow up to be a Power Ranger, it ain't gonna happen. Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> nope. Luckily for me, I was one of those kids. I wanted to grow up to be a Power Ranger. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's... And that's the what we gotta combat with all the time, especially now, is there's so much misinformation about what we do and what we're teaching, and... Do, do you have what's your youngest that you're teaching right now? Uh, my youngest student is five. Five, yeah. A lot of times, especially at that age, the, the parents bring them in for usually two reasons. One of two re- two reasons. One, they saw the Power Rangers or Ninja Turtles or whatever the, the fat is now, uh, and go, and they're like jumping around, throwing kicks in the air, and they clearly love it. And like wow, he loves it. I, I want to bring him into it, and I. I have to kind of bring him down to earth, but at the same time, go okay. That's not really what we're doing here. But I maybe it'll transfer if he can stay focused, and then down the road he's going to do those you know fancy stuff that he likes to do. But that's not day one stuff. Or you get the the parents that come in and go, my kid is out of control. He's terrible. Can you fix him? <laughs> and and I'm, my handfuls of those. Yeah, and. Yeah, early on as, uh, especially if it's a full-time job like mine was and has been, I have to say yes early on. At, at this point, I can say no to some people, but early on when I had like two students and had to pay the bills, I'm like, yep, bring them in. Let, let's see what I can do with this kid. And over time, I realized those are not kids that I, I want in the studio because they just they, they make it miserable for everybody and then run off other students but you, you gotta have to kind of learn that as you go it's easy to say that and, but not always easy to understand it but yeah that that's the two students we tend to get at that age it's very rare that we get the student that settles in and really wants to learn the art the way it's presented and that's, that's a tough find but uh, it's out there and it, Correct me if I'm wrong. With uh, your students, I'm guessing, much like mine and much like Mike's, they are not the quarterback of the team. They were the one that rode the bench and got frustrated and are looking for something else. So skill level may not be 100%, (laughs) and we have to make it 100%. (laughs) Yeah, that's particularly true. Uh, Fortunately, that doesn't really matter. Anyone that puts enough time and effort into it can become a great martial artist. Mm -hmm. But um, that's especially true with my younger students. Um, The school that I have now is kind of a
1: strange exception to my my career in that 80% of my students are adults, Mm -hmm. Um, like over the age of 35, right? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's crazy. I've, I've, uh, I owned one school before the one that I own now. Um, and I was working with you at that time too. And I had, I don't know, 35 students at that school in a small town Mm -hmm. in Nebraska. And, uh, they were all under the age of 17, right? Yeah. And the majority of my students now are over the age of 40. (laughs) Um, and that's been a benefit right that's been a huge um, I don't know that it's better or worse than having a bunch of young students that's that's not really a proper way to word it but it's been a unique experience for me getting to work with primarily adults and that's something that was frankly a new experience for me uh, with my current school because I just I was used to working with kids, right? Mm. And hilariously, um, a couple of my uh, more than a couple, a few of my adult students came from schools that were primarily kids. And when when you're having a conversation with a fifty six year old advanced green belt in taekwondo who up until he started training under you had never sparred anyone over the age of
0: twelve. <laughs> Uh, it, you know, it, it's mind boggling how, how appreciative an adult student is of the experience to work with other adults. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Because, I mean, that, that's a real situation. Um, my, one of my advanced green belts right now, he's 56 years old, retired from the Marine Corps. Um, you know, and so, I mean, he had combat, uh, yeah, combat training obviously before, and he was at a taekwondo school in Oklahoma for a couple of years, and never had a training partner over the age of twelve, never. Mm-hmm. And so when he came to me, and you know we started getting into light contact sparring and stuff, and the self defense combinations. That reminds me of another point we'll have to talk about later. But uh, there was a lot. From his training at his previous school, that he just didn't realize how incorrect and stupid it was until he had to use it on somebody that was more than four foot five. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I did this. The, I rambled a bit there, but, uh, you know, that last little section, there was a lot to unpack there. There were just so many points I had to pick one, and that's the mm-hmm. I picked. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it's interesting because when I first started training, I actually. Didn't deal with any kids until I moved here to to uh, Wilmington Uh, because the the Hapkido program, like in Taekwondo, even at the time with Roskin School, uh, there was an adult class, and that's the one I attended. And so there'd be some teenagers in there, but that was me. I was a teenager at the time too, so I was one of the younger students. But uh, we've always had more adults in that regard, Uh, especially with Hapkido. We just don't teach it to kids. The it wasn't until I went full time with the studio here that I even opened it up to kids. Uh, Even the Taekwondo program, I was only teaching adults at the time, and so it it, it's tough with the the difference between teaching those two groups. I didn't know how to teach kids, and I'm guessing a lot of people don't know how to teach adults because in most schools the kids kind of rule. And you get some adults. But that's not always the case. It kind of depends on the art, though, too. But, yeah, it was just adults, adults, adults all the time. That was 100% of my base early on. And for a lot of years, until I started up the the after-school program, uh, adults were just my biggest base. But trying to train kids was different. Because I can't talk about the same things I talk about with the, the adult classes, you know what's it going to feel like when you dig a knife into somebody's ribs, you know, it, <laughs> talking about swapping blood in the middle of a fight. Like I can't discuss this and explain certain reasonings for why I'm doing what I'm doing with the kids. But the the nice thing and the whole reason I started the after school program was so I would have more time with them because a lot of the kids I had would be like one or two times a week and I I just felt like especially for 45 minutes to an hour I'm like I'm just occupying their time at this point I don't feel like anything's being done you'd get one or two of those kids that just lock in they love it and they go home and practice but that's so few but with the after school I get them for three hours now we're not doing martial arts but uh, you know for at least an hour hour and a half we're doing martial arts stuff with them every day Monday through Friday and, uh, seeing a dramatic uptick on their, their talent level and skill level and knowledge is a uh, huge, cause, you know, when you work with them for that long, uh, you understand them, they, 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 trust you quicker. They understand what you're doing. You get to explain things on a deeper level with them. So, uh, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. I, have you tried teaching Hapkido to any of the kids? So when I did No, this was years ago um, But when I went For uh, You know, we do the some, some, some behind the scenes stuff That some of the listeners might not understand uh, But we we have the elite program for uh, Instructor certification mm. So My uh, my instructor project Was uh, A youth have keto program And I'm going to preface this by saying that I have requirements, uh, that are pretty, pretty rigid and I don't really bend on for, um, you know, I, I typically, I don't star someone and have keto that's under the age of 16. That's just kind of the rule of thumb, right? And that's Mm -hmm. kind of my most pliable rule. That's. That's, that's kind of the rule of thumb that I'm the most lenient on. Yeah. But the youngest the youngest Tepkido student that I have right now is ten, mm-hmm. and she she's a special circumstance. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so in order for me to let somebody that and I'm sure you're similar, right? That is under. The minimum age requirement for for Hapkido because there's a lot of techniques in keto, First of all, that it, until you have a better, you know, control over your own body movements, uh, they're hard to do. Not only, but they're also
2: super dangerous for a mm-hmm. kid. Right? Yeah. Um. So, but she's she's a she's an accomplished taekwondo practitioner already. I mean, accomplished, whatever, but. Uh, my point is, she's good, and mm. she asked me herself uh, behind her dad's back. <laughs> behind her dad's back, she came up to me and asked if I would be willing to do some kind of watered-down, generic apkito stuff with her, just mm. because she thought it was cool, and she wanted the, the more hands-on self-defense training Yeah. And I'm like, you're 10 years old, and you just snuck behind your dad's back to ask me if you were mature enough to try this. And that's what she asked me. She said, do you think I'm grown up enough to learn this stuff? And I said, the fact that you had to ask me that means yes, you are. So let's give it a try under the condition that if I even hear a rumor or a whisper or a hair on the back of my neck stands up that leads me to believe that this is getting misused in any way, you're done. Mm And uh, she loves it, absolutely loves it. And it's, you know, so what I teach her is more based on the youth Hapkido program that I wrote for my uh, instructor certification in Hapkido. And, you know, it's a little more watered down. A lot of the stuff is, it's it's the same, but the progression is a lot slower. I said, don't get discouraged if you're a white belt for four years. Mm-hmm. Like, that, that, that could happen. Yeah. And she said, that's fine. And she comes in, she works her ass off at, I mean, the, the level. And it's interesting because she started as a Taekwondo student of mine. Uh, her whole family is, is actually in Taekwondo. And uh, she, so she started as a Taekwondo student. I mean? She's, she's 10 years old and she's one of my
1: best Taekwondo students. You know, once in a while you get one that just, they come in and they just get it. Yeah. You know what I mean? She's one of those in Taekwondo. And uh, so she starts learning this Hapkido stuff, and interestingly, the, the level of caution when we're working on Hapkido stuff that I've instilled in her has actually made her leadership skills in Taekwondo multiply tenfold. She... She's 10 years old, and if I'm working with some higher-ranking students and there's a white belt struggling with something, this 10-year-old girl will walk up to a 16-year-old white belt and, and correct their technique <laughs> and say, hey, uh, watch your front stance, you're not deep enough, or you know, make sure you keep your arms up when you're doing this, that, and the other thing. Um,
0: her apkino stuff is is progressing slowly, which that's why I decided I wanted to, right? Because she's 10 and I want to make sure she understands the severity of this stuff Um, but because of that her leadership skills in Taekwondo have grown exponentially and there's just an interesting correlation there yeah yeah it makes sense the there is a sense of confidence in that especially the way you described it the the fact that she went to you uh, and you're kind of allowing her to do this I, I have no doubt she's thinking oh there's something there, like he thinks I'm special in some way that I'm good enough to do this. And that, that's a boost of confidence that then gets turned around into leadership value there. And I've, I've had students with that with uh, behavioral issues before that they struggled through class. They had issues with other kids. They, they didn't want to do what I say, but if I ask them to get up and run a, a warm up session for the, the class, suddenly their demeanor changes like, oh, you think I'm good enough to do this? Well then, I'm yeah. going gonna, gonna to step this up a little bit. And you see the whole class for them change when you give them that little bit of opportunity to, to prove themselves. And it's uh, it, it's amazing. And that's the big thing. The difference between the, the the adults and the kids is the adults don't always make that connection, but the kids do for some reason. The they just they feel a little more empowered, whereas adults tend to beat themselves down a lot. Even when you say they're doing well, they go, well, I must be good in that thing, but everything else I must suck at. (laughs) We're a little more self-defeating than kids are. The kids are looking for the the positive. The the adults are looking for the negative. There's always that uh, thing to deal with when teaching both of them. And that's where the the teenagers come in great. I I love working with teenagers because they have that positive mindset But they have the adult level skill and work ethic. Sometimes, so there's a lot, lot behind teaching that I I don't think people fully understand how complicated teaching can be, and the the constant thought behind it and adjustments. And you know, from the time I was a, a first degree teaching to now, it's night and day. And I wasn't bad as a teacher then; I just didn't understand so much of that. Early on, which everybody develops over time, hundred percent. You know, and there's, that's another really
1: interesting point, right? Um, you know, assist, I, I was an assistant instructor for your for uh, your brother Mike for you know years when I was in college um, because I I came into Hapkido first of all uh, <laughs> when I you know I think I told I think I mentioned this already when I started uh, training under Mike for Hapkido I was a fourth degree black belt in Shotokan already. Mm-hmm. So, um, there's an interesting like then versus now as an instructor is, is what we were talking about. I had to fix my train of thought for a second there. um, So I came from so the the, the instructor, uh, his name was Eric Folden. He's unfortunately passed away now. Um, he he was a great instructor. the man's brain he forgot more about martial arts than you and I'll ever know Mm -hmm. and I mean the the man was incredible he was a great instructor but he was a horrible leader (laughs) Uh, he knew technique after technique after technique and he could correct footwork and eye contact and hand-eye coordination he had all these really great tricks for correcting Technique, okay? And I get a lot of my insistence for excellence when it comes to technique uh, for him Man from you. Um, but, you know, martial arts is 49% physical and 51% mental training. Mm-hmm. If you don't have the confidence and the mental discipline to back up your physical training, it's useless to you. Yeah. And uh, he, did not know how to teach the mental side of it he was very uh, I mean he he was kind of a dick right is I guess (laughs) the point I'm getting at Um, and so then I came to um, I had a couple schools in in different disciplines between uh, the bulk of my shortcut training and when I started with Mike and I had the opposite problem I had this great this great instructor who uh, is still alive and will probably actually listen to this because I told him to, so I'm not going to mention him. <laughs> but uh, he had the opposite problem. No offense, buddy. Uh, he was really good at the philosophical side of martial arts, right? Mm. Training not only to be able to defend yourself but mentally training to wake up tomorrow a better person than I was today you know that concept he was really good at instilling that in people and motivating people to push to just be better people right which is a huge thing that I learned from him um, and and incorporated in my own teaching style similarly to the way he taught it to me Uh, great motivator terrible martial artist physically <laughs> terrible and he just did not know how to teach technique right he would show you kind of a half-cocked way of doing a technique and as long as you more or less mirrored the way he did it uh, it was good enough <laughs> yeah. so you know and there again that goes back to I'm, I'm thankful for the different varieties of instructors that I've had because I think uh I think that I have become the best instructor that I could possibly be taking the good and bad from every instructor I've ever had.
0: Yes. Yeah. And that's, you know, I've trained, uh, and I've avoided saying the name of the association school through numerous podcasts, but <laughs> if you ever hear me talk, uh, crap about a certain association, uh, it's this one, but I won't say the name, uh, and, and, Rightfully so. I, I've, I've, I've met people, other instructors in this association that I have immense respect for and are great instructors. Their school is great. It's the association that sets up bad instructors, unfortunately, and draws them in. But, uh, you know, I, I trained with them for, I think, about three years. And I actually trained with them years ago, uh, before I moved here. And so I knew the association a little bit uh, at the time, but uh, you know, training with them. I when I moved here, I knew I hated it, <laughs> but they were the devil I knew versus the devil I didn't know. And I didn't know the other associations and schools around here at the time. And so I trained with them, and over the the course of those three years, and being gouged every time I blink, having to pay more money. Uh, it got very frustrating seeing you know, the, the way tournaments went down and how I was kind of being screwed because I didn't have the right patches on. <laughs> it, it was so much. But the one thing that I took from it is everybody, every one of the students was happy. And it took me a while to kind of figure it out because they were terrible martial artists. They like just got awful. I, I, it was so frustrating in that regard. But they were happy and confident, and like had great leadership skills. And so that there kind of taught me that even the bad gives you something good. And maybe it was through false confidence, but it didn't really matter. When you have confidence, you have confidence. They wouldn't be able to back it up, but their confidence level would assure that they may never have to go out there and try and prove to back it up. And it, it's an interesting concept, and these people were getting, you know, first degree black belt at you know, four years old, and after one year of training, <laughs> and me watching them fall down eight times during their form and get the crap kicked out of them at sparring, and then going, "Here's your black belt," and like, oh jeez. But again, they were happy, and it was just, it was fascinating to me the, the, it was just it was a different way to train. Physically didn't matter mentally is what they're kind of training they they did a good job of producing uh, confident students and that atmosphere a mar- I always say, pe- tell people about this association it, they're ter- terrible martial artists but they're great at making you feel like you're training in martial arts when you're not actually doing it <laughs> there's no hard hitting going on there's nothing real about it but man you feel like you did it <laughs> It's, it's just fascinating. Even seminars that I'll go to that, that I'm like, oh, jeez, this is terrible. But there's always something there that I take away from it, even from that bad. You know, and
1: that, that's interesting, and it's, it's always a bummer when... The, you know, there, there's always students in any school, whether the instructor's good or bad. There's always students that have the potential to grow exponentially if their instructor could pull their head far enough out of their butthole to just see it and mm-hmm. really focus on it, and you know, smooth over the areas that need work. And you know, there's a lot to be said in martial arts training about first of all there's no place for an ego you can't if you if you go into martial arts thinking you're you're hot shit and your poop don't stink and whatever else mm-hmm. uh you know you might be slightly more talented at fighting than your average person that doesn't make you a good martial artist no Being a good fighter doesn't make you a good martial artist no nope. right and it really breaks my heart when i You know, I visit other schools or go to tournaments hosted by other schools, and the instructor's freaking ego punishes their students. Right? Like, I I hate watching potentially really good students suffer under the ego of a bad instructor. Mm -hmm. Because not only is that instructor doing his own reputation a disservice, but he's really, I mean. I would be ashamed to represent, I guess, myself in a way that some of these instructors do. And it, it's not just in Wyoming, it's not just in Nebraska, it's everywhere, right? It's martial arts as a whole. Uh, if you're, if you, if you got a second degree black belt in, you know, copy paste karate, and you tweak a couple things and then claim you've invented your own style and appoint yourself the status of Grandmaster <laughs> having never passed a second-degree black belt test. Mm-hmm. Get bent. I have no respect for people like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, a, it's really a bummer to watch the 50 students who pay him ungodly amounts of money a month to train under him because he has Grandmaster in front of his name Unfortunately. Uh, suffer
0: under... That type of arrogance. Mm-hmm. And that that same same association. I, I know I've said this on a, a previous podcast. The same story, and I've written about it too. And it, th- this was a, a defining moment of my. Oh my God, this is crap. Type of thing it, it, in martial arts. So like, am I doing this? Am I that instructor too? Am, am I teaching this crap? It it wasn't just. This one wasn't necessarily the physical; it was the mental side of this brainwashing that was going on. And I, I was at a tournament, a huge, massive tournament, and like I think there was 900 black belts that I was competing against, and like that—that's an insane number. And there was another—that's outrageous. Oh, <laughs> uh, at least another thousand color belt ranks competing at this tournament. And I was there at like 6am to get ready and I ended up competing at 6pm uh, and not knowing when I was going to it was just, I felt like it was a terribly run tournament but people seemed to love it but the, the start of this tournament we had lined up and going through some stuff and they're like okay the, the, the Grand Masters, they're about to come out, like we need to summon their spirits and I'm giggling the whole time like this is ridiculous and then like we must split the sea of people and students and like Moses splitting the sea I'm like oh Jesus and we, we, we split this aisle between all everyone lined up and they're like now uh, we must summon the spirits of the, the masters and so they present us and do this and do that and honor us uh, honor us with their presence and like, let's stomp your feet, and then this side, you will slap your hands together. and Like, back and forth, and, like, we're chanting to summon these spirits, and, again, I'm just giggling through the whole thing. Like, this is ridiculous. Oh, my God. And then finally, after, like, ten minutes of getting tired of doing it, uh, the first master instructor presented himself and started walking down and shaking hands and kissing babies and like a politician and walking down the aisle, aisle and uh, everyone's screaming their name. And I'm like, well, I, I know this guy. He's kind of a dick. I, like, I don't understand what's, what's so special about this one. And then the next one comes out. And there's like seven of these guys. And they're all like sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth degree uh, black belts. And uh, they all go and sit at this head table that's way up above everybody else. And they just, like, get fed grapes as they watch the, the tournament go on, and, uh, sign autographs and take pictures. They're doing absolutely nothing other than that. And uh, but to, to kick off the tournament, uh, the host, who I assume was probably like an eighth or ninth degree uh, at the time, and he was going to do a demonstration. And it's like so everyone sat down and gave him some room, and he started off with a, a form. And in this association, that your form at that rank is pretty well made up, like, you you take, like, the first 24 movements they give you, and say this is how it starts, and then you're supposed to take, like, your father's age and double it, or something like that, and that's how long the form's supposed to be, It's, it's, it's ridiculous, but it's, like, front kick, punch, low block, front kick, punch, high block, side kick, round kick, like, the most basic stuff that your average white belt can do, and just done, like, 200 moves in a row, and so... Bland and boring, and I'm like, okay, well that sucked. But he was supposed to do this amazing board break, and like a a handful of them. There's like three stations set up, and the the big one, the centerpiece, was him breaking on this contraption set up ten boards stacked, like no spacers, and he was going to do a a jump or not a jump, a, a number three side kick, like step behind the front leg, kick with that front leg, and I thought, damn, that's going to be impressive. Like, I I may have to convert to this uh, (laughs) cult here if he breaks this thing, because that's ten stack boards together. And I'm a strong dude with with pretty freaking good technique. (laughs) And like, I think five would be a pretty tough ask. Yeah, exactly. And so I'm just like giddy, waiting for this to happen. And he explained what the first break was going to be with the second one, and then he was going to do that one last. And uh, the first break, he was, the, mind you, this guy was probably in his 60s and looked pretty heavily overweight. Uh, I think he was maybe, we'll say 5'10 and probably 220, 220 230 something like that. Not easily to, to jump and fly through the air. But he was going to do a, uh, a jump, front, or I think it was a split kick, like a, a basically like a twist kick to the one side and a side kick to the other, and then a punch all in the air. So two kicks and a punch in the air. And I thought, damn, all right. I can't wait to see this. And then another station was something pretty simple, and then that big one. And so he gets ready to do the board breaks, and, of course, you know, uh, you know don't, don't talk during this time. He needs his total focus to summon the spirits to break this board. And he goes to jump and makes like two inches off the ground and doesn't even get half a kick off before he lands and misses all three of the, the boards. And I'm like, well, what the hell was that? And he, he tries it again and barely touches one board and let alone get the other two kicks and strike off. And he turns to the crowd. He's like, well, I've been suffering this knee injury lately. Uh, I thought I could power through it, uh, but it's best I not. So I'm, I'm going to change this board break to a round kick, a front kick, and a punch. <laughs> I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> so he just goes and does some basic stuff that I have kids do and breaks those. And then he breaks this other board fairly easily. And But I'm like, anyway, if he can hit this 10, I, I'm, I'm convinced. I'm signing up forever. Yeah, still so, Still so. Yeah. <laughs> And he, he kind of trots into it and slams his foot into it, and it goes thud. Nothing broke. Okay. And he tries again, and, like, the last board breaks. Okay. And then he does it again, a couple more boards break. And again, another board break. Like, he, he did this, like, eight times. <laughs> and finally gets all the boards, like, basically hit one at a time. And... I just bust out laughing Like this is ridiculous Like that was horrible And then as soon as I do that I see everyone just cheer And like they just witnessed a miracle And I'm like oh no (laughs) 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 This isn't good (laughs) Uh, It it was painful to watch The whole rest of the day I I was stunned Like did they really think He did something special right there like, I am shocked at this. And all day long, they're, like, kissing his feet and bowing at him. And I'm just like, oh, my God. And just that the ego behind that and to <laughs> that the confidence to go out there and do that <laughs> when, when there was no chance of him doing that was just mind-blowing to me. So the, the and your audience is so brainwashed about the celebrity of who that uh, you are that
1: like you put on a
0: terrible performance and yeah. you still kiss the ground you walked on to get there. Yep, and you see that constantly. You see those in those videos, like the no touch knockouts, and how these instructors like you know point at you and you fall to the ground, go flying across the room, and, it, and that's all it is. It's just brainwashing. They, they train themselves to take a beating from these instructors that suck and worship the ground they work uh, they, that they walk on. It, it's just, it's amazing to me. And I, I have, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I no, that that's pretty much it. I'm just, I'm stunned. Still to this day, I'm stunned by this. I have two points about that that kind of kick off from that story that I'd like to touch on. If that's all right, real fast. Yep. Um, first of all. There are, I mean, tens of thousands of
1: self-proclaimed grandmasters, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, like, just an absurd number of e- egotistical douchebags is all they really are, that, that, I mean, man, they, like, like we said, you know, they got a, a first or second degree black belt in something and then, quote unquote, invented their own style and now they're tentadons, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um the lunacy of that, it's people like that that make it hard for true, good martial arts instructors to to have, you know, a successful career and finding students that are worth having because yeah. you get one bad experience with a pompous ass like that, and that, I mean, to, to someone who, who can't see past it or doesn't have the experience to know that that's what's happening they have that bad experience and that just ruins martial arts for them. Right. Because yeah. that's how everyone is obviously.
0: Unfortunately.
1: And it's just a huge bummer. hmm. And, you know, I'm a confident guy. I, have I've, I've got 27 years of training experience. Um, I'm, I'm tested, you know, cause I'm an MMA fighter, uh, outside of, outside of an, a martial arts instructor. I do, I do fight as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean I'm tested. I carry a lot of confidence. I I can take over a conversation without trying to because that's just that's just my personality, right? But it's not it's not ego. Um, any any person in or outside of my school is welcome to come to my school and and bring my skills into question, right? That's fine with me. Yeah. I'm not afraid to prove that I'm that I'm a valid instructor, right? That's easy. The part that people don't understand okay so we talk about and I heard I I, I listened to the episode where you and Brent talked about uh, talked about the rank of master and when you feel like you truly deserve that right yeah um so in in Shotokan the first master rank is fifth degree so technically master in that and in most Korean arts depending on which association you learn them from the first master rank is typically fourth degree um fourth to sixth somewhere in there Mm -hmm.
0: I do not on any paperwork anywhere have my name listed as Master Hobart okay Mm -hmm. Uh, in rank sure I guess Uh, my students call me Master Hobart they have at every school I've ever been at Um, I don't and will never ask anyone to address me as Master Hobart. Okay? That's a title that your students give you if they earn your respect as an instructor and think you're worthy of being called that. If you ask someone to call you Master so-and-so, you don't deserve it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's... You know, uh, a lot of people don't realize... I think... And this is traditional with uh, you know, the Okinawan, and I'm guessing most styles... You never call yourself a sensei or sabinim or master. It's the no. students that call you that. you you don't state it. You shouldn't have to state it. Your actions will develop that or they won't and you shouldn't have to care about it. It's not something you do. It's, it's their way of presenting uh, your name out there, whatever it may be and it's the same thing. I, I don't tell, most of my students call me Mr. Dan. The, even my kids, I just I don't really care. <laughs> it's it's just the way it is. But I've had a few students say master, but usually it's people that came from other arts that their instructor at the time demanded they call them master. So when they came to me, like oh master Dan, I'm like man eh, eh, whatever, you don't have to call me that. Like, it's just conditioned for them. So yeah, it's it's strange, and I, I've never really put much effort into it in that regard. Well, One, you, you shouldn't, if, you, if you're putting effort into maintaining that title, you didn't earn it in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, you know what I mean? And it just, it's so frustrating to me. I, I went to a tournament uh, here recently, uh, put
1: on by Rank Master, insert last name here, and uh, I was talking with, you know, This individual and the instructors that worked under him, and some people from schools uh, in the area. And everybody addressed him as that, even people from different schools. He was Grandmaster So and so. And I was like, oh, that's, you know, that's cool. That's, that's a pretty big accomplishment. Like, good, good for you. Uh, How long did it take you to, to reach, you know, eighth, ninth degree black belt? And he said, well, technically, I'm a first degree. Excuse me. So we go around the room and we're all kind of talking about ourselves a little bit. And I mean, there were seasoned instructors here, dudes. You know, in their into their sixties. I'm 31 years old, and I'm sitting at the table with all these. You know, I'm 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 being polite and keeping my opinions about this to myself, right? Because it's my first tournament with these guys, and um, it's in a state where. You know, I've I've only lived here for a year and a half, and I don't know any of these people. So I'm trying to build good relations with schools in the area. Obviously, like you you know, Mm -hmm. you want to support each other's events and stuff. Um, So I'm listening to these guys talk, and I'm like, I have, I have legitimate, okay, sixth degree black belt is my highest rank. Uh, I have 17 degrees of black belt throughout my You know, my repertoire, my my list of accomplishments, I guess we'll call it. And I'm the highest-ranking dude at the table is the point I'm getting at here. Mm -hmm. I'm sitting here with all of these, like, I mean, in in their respective communities, well-respected instructors. Yeah. And they're all master this and grandmaster that. (laughs) And, you know, I'm a
0: six-degree black belt. Half the age of a lot of these dudes, and I'm the highest ranking guy at the table with, with traceable certification, mm-hmm. and that experience to me, and the f- it just it blew my mind, and I was like I I I can't fathom how far up your own ass your head has to be to allow <laughs> yourself to get to this point. Yeah, I I, I don't know where it comes from because, it, it, you know, I've had. I'm thankful for Master Roskins because he didn't demand that type of stuff. He was pretty straightforward. You know, he, he's a law enforcement guy. He, like, it was a no BS type of system that we worked, even through the traditional arts. And the you know Master Brooks was a little bit different, but even that changed over the years. But it's it's strange to me. It just it never crossed my mind. What I need to call myself, it's just it's Dan. My my name's Dan. Uh, It's always been that way. The first the first person that ever called me Master Burrell was actually Grandmaster S.J. Kim, and that was I was like a fourth or fifth degree at the time. And that that's something to be proud of, right there. Yeah, and and it was just it was a sign of respect, and because he didn't really know me that well, other than what Master Brooks had talked to me about or talk to him about, about me. And so that was the, when he said that, it just kind of like stunned me for a second. I'm like, I'm not, but you don't say that. <laughs> I'm not going to correct him. So it, that was the first time. And I think one other instructor in that association had called me that. Uh, and that was it. It's just, it, it's strange to me. <laughs> it's, it doesn't make sense because it, it's not something I feel worthy of, for one. I mean, I've completed the master's program, but that was just for knowledge. And it, it's still its just weird. I, I've never understood why I would want to be placed on a pedestal just so I can get knocked off every chance I get. Because <laughs> I'm not going to go hide in a room and just go, okay, it's done. I'm a master. <laughs> I need to go out and prove it.
1: Right. <laughs> and I'm not going to prove it. <laughs>
0: The second you think you know everything is the second you prove how little you really understand. Yeah. There's just so damn much to learn. I mean, you know, I I learn as much from other instructors. I I learn as much from my students as I do my own training. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Being an instructor in and of itself teaches you stupid and numerous numbers of things. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, a yellow belt will present something about a technique that you just never thought of before, and you're like, holy crap, you're actually, that 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 makes a really big degree of sense, Mm -hmm. and this this kid doesn't know what he's talking about really even, and he's like, oh, well, obviously it's this, and I'm like, no kidding. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I was listening to a podcast earlier today. Uh, and I, it was, uh, Tony Blower. I don't know if you, you you know who that is, but, uh, he's uh, a reality-based self-defense type of thing. And so kind of a no-nonsense, we just need to get straight to it. Don't care about your style, your art, any fancy stuff. We just, I need to get you to learn how to defend yourself is what it comes down to. And, um he had mentioned when he first started training, which I think was taekwondo was what he had mentioned. And he was like 15. The the instructor was going through punches and you got a key up and then throw your punch. Like the whole class was doing it. And he refused to do it, but he didn't want to stand out from the crowd and upset anybody. So he just mimicked mouthing the key up and then didn't do it and then threw the punch. And his whole point was, why would I want to scream out before I throw a punch? Doesn't that give it away? <laughs> and sure. as an instructor, you go, yeah, but that's not how we do it. <laughs> but that there is a reason why we do it. It's just to teach you your breath control. And as an instructor, you need to know that the, the, the class heard you. But, you know, what, what he said was true. You don't want to key up and then throw a punch at somebody. It makes no sense. So why would you train it to do that? And so the, there's always going to be that uh, that student that asks a, a question that you, you want to shut them down, like, let me stay on task here so I can explain this, but damn, that was a good question. <laughs> it's like, right. I get you questioning me, but let me get it all out first and explain why we do this, because it does get really damn complicated, and situations change everything all the time. And my students hear me say that all the time is uh, like, w- what do I do here? Well, it depends. <laughs> What's this guy got? What's that guy got? What, is there another person? Do, do you have a weapon? Do, does the the sun shine in your eyes right now? Like everything can change everything at any point. And it gets so complicated to, to explain everything that could possibly happen and it's just the way it is those questions come up and it makes you think as an instructor and go okay how would I answer that you know what how should I answer that because I can't just tell them to shut up I, I've never I know Mike and I are on the same page with this uh, the, the the answer of that's the way it's always been pisses us off like I don't care the 100% way it's been of the time. yeah it's uh, if I don't know the answer, sometimes I kind of get around it but for the most part I say I'm not really sure (laughs) and at this point I know how to answer most of these questions but every so often I'll get a a really good question from a, a student and I go you know what I don't really know how to answer that right now like I'm gonna have to get back to you on that and you know there's instructors out there that will just BS their way through it and Lie to you and say they know it or tell you to shut up or that's the way it is and it's, it's terrible. That goes back to us wanting our students to do better than us and if we just tell them to shut up and do what we say and what we've done all the time then it's not going to do that. Well right, because a lot of, you know, a lot of what we have done, uh, was done either incorrectly
1: or for no other reason than that's how we were taught and sometimes that's just not good enough yeah you know sometimes the best answer is well here's what it
0: isn't (laughs) Mm -hmm. process of elimination yep and
1: I mean I I had that come up recently I don't even remember what the technique was (laughs) it was something in one of our advanced green belt uh, forms and I'm I, is that right? Because all the stuff from the man's green belt is pretty self-explanatory, but, uh, I don't, I don't even remember what the situation was. Um, but the, the question was asked in a way that it threw me off. Like I just didn't have an answer. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just looked at the student that asked it and I said, that is a very well thought out question. Uh, when you figure out the answer, let me know. Cause I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, funny, funny. Um, and a lot of that comes from, you know, you can answer students' questions a lot of the times just by demonstrating, you know, your understanding of what such-and-such such is for or where such-and-such such came from. I had a really interesting experience uh, at a tournament recently uh, where I was doing, uh, we didn't have enough black belts to sign up for this tournament to fire black belt team sparring, mm-hmm. so I was, the, there was, there were four teams in this in this event and each team had one black or two black belts and a white belt uh, in the same age category, right? So the white belts, uh, you know, they they sparred each other, and then the two black belts from each team uh, Mm -hmm. sparred. And uh, my current advanced green belts were regular green belts at the time. And so in their forms we had circle blocks right we were working on circle blocks Mm -hmm. and i mean they knew what they were for but they didn't really understand how it would be practically applicable and time efficient to use a circle block for anything and i'm like well you know i can tell you and we talk about it and blah 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 but there was there was still some question right like is this really an effective technique a circle block what the hell is that (laughs) you know what i mean and uh so I'm in this in this black belt team sparring event at this tournament, uh, and I caught a round kick with a circle block through the dude's leg out of the way, and then kicked him in the chin. Um, and one of my students was recording it, and they went back and watched it afterwards, and they came up to me. I mean, right after the event was over, both of my green belts came up to me, and they were like, sir, I
2: get it. And I was <laughs> like, what do you mean? Because I didn't even realize I had done it; it was instinctual, right? Yeah. Just muscle memory for me, and and they come up and they were like, "Well, you did a circle block uh,
1: in your sparring match," and I was like, "Oh, did I?" <laughs> so they went back and played it, and I was like, "Oh, hey, you wanted to know what circle blocks are for? <laughs> Look at
0: that." <laughs> yeah, and that that comes up a lot it, when I try and explain what forms are for, because a lot of people hate forms, and I, I get it, but. Uh, I actually enjoy forms, uh, more so now than I did when I first started training with them. But the best way I can explain what a form is, it's just a self-defense movement that you train in a very particular manner so that you have a a memory of how to train it and these are the movements that you need for your rank. And some of them are, they, they all can be applied somehow. But to say that I know exactly how this gets applied and how it was developed, it's BS with, I don't know. Uh, I know how I apply it, but that doesn't mean it's right. It's just a way of doing it. you know, like the, the circle block, it could be done a lot of different ways. You know, you can use it just to do, like you said, block a, a leg out of the way and go from there. And you know, with the, I have, and I don't know if this has gotten to you yet or not, cause I, I made an adjustment on the green belt, self defense techniques, which are basically applications to what's in the form. Um, And then a few of them are just extra stuff, especially at the higher ranks, I just add stuff in. But uh, that green belt, I have currently four defenses in there, and and part of it is getting rid of that circle block. Uh, Not because it wasn't useful. I I like the defense, it was just so hard to do without damaging the knee or dropping somebody on their head, because it was... Used as a, uh, I was using it as a leg sweep. You know, step out of the way and just sweep the leg as they're stepping forward before they get their weight onto it. And then you can also apply it for a shoulder lock, a scoop shoulder lock. It's the same motion. So that's what. Yeah, and that's that's what they're you know I this too. I I go back and forth with Mike a lot on these and uh, like the bending stance. He hates that move. (laughs) And uh, I've always gone back and forth whether or not I accept the fact that he doesn't teach it versus teaching it. uh, Because he doesn't fully understand what it is and I can't fully explain it to him. Uh, I know what I use it for, but to say that's what it was intended for, I have no idea. But I implemented a fourth uh, defense that replaced that one and it makes use of that bending stance but I know he's refusing to do it right now because he just hates it so much he like he physically and mentally cannot see it uh what I'm doing and it's it's frustrating so I, I just let it go so I don't know if that one's got to you or not but it's actually a great technique because again it's something we use in pump Keto all the time uh it's just applied uh through the bending stance great uh I'll
1: have to visit on the
0: uh, we'll talk about that later yeah um,
1: is, I know what you mean. Um, you know, in our, our self-defense combos, I cannot tell you how many students I've had from other, that have come to you know, come to me from other schools and when we get into taekwondo they're like, what are these self-defense combos? I don't get it. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize okay, uh, when I first got into taekwondo with Mike I didn't realize that the self-defense combos are one-steps is what we called them back in the day. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that that wasn't something that people just did it at most schools. I cannot tell you how many students I've, I've had that are like, you know, I came from this school and we did forms and, and that was it. These self-defense combos, you know, putting these techniques into, like, situationally real-world
0: applicable scenarios they are like, this is genius and I, you know... The level of understanding that our self defense combos promotes is compared to to not having them is I mean it's astounding and yeah. I get feedback for it all the time. <laughs> yeah, and it's and that's why I, I adjusted to self defense combos because we I think you were doing the one steps at the time as well. Uh, the one steps I first learned for Taekwondo uh, were atrocious. They're fun. Don't get me wrong, but it was you know they step in and throw a punch, and then you step back, do an inner crescent kick, outer crescent kick, inner crescent kick, punch, round kick. Like, <laughs> okay, that's not going to happen. You know the first movement, you you make contact with, they're going to change their position. It's isn't going to work. So it, it was just there to condition your your techniques for the uh, for that rank. That's all they were there for, and they were they were just terrible. Uh, and I wanted to change that, and that's why I switched it over to self-defense combos. And the the whole process of the forms, when you first go through a lot of those forms, it doesn't make sense. Like, why am I moving my arm upward and the other one downward? Like, I don't I don't get this. This this isn't a punch. It's not a kick. It doesn't seem to be a block. What what is it? And those questions come up all the time. So I just went through and applied some of the most common questions that I had for the techniques in each form and said, well, this is how you use it, so here's your defense. And for some of them, like a high block. High block's a terrible block, but it doesn't have to be used as a block. It can be used on, like, that second defense there uh, in Orange Belt is just a forearm to the chin to open up the stomach. So, that was the intent behind that, and I I like these a lot better. I'm still tweaking them. Like, what you see on the recordings that I've made, uh, I've changed almost all of them, at least somewhat, even if it's just a slight transfer of uh, uh, weight to a different foot or something like that. They're always in development, always being adjusted, but that was the goal with those is to really show the application of what you're training in those forms, and that the forms are not just there for mindless training. You're meant to really be thinking about them as you go through those techniques and uh, condition the body through that movement. So. Uh, I'm, I'm glad they're being noticed. Yeah, and, and I you know not only did
1: I notice, but my my students noticed, and they I mean I get feedback from it all, all the time. They're like, man, these self defense self defense combos are sweet. Like, and, and I, I I take them a step farther a lot of the times if there's if there's one that a student is either struggling with or exceptionally good at, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll take it and we'll say, okay, let's do this combination. Um, but instead of a punch show me how this exact thing how would you adapt this to work uh when you're defending against a side kick or a round kick or a jump front kick right like uh, we'll break these down by movement and then adapt them to different scenarios just and that's just that comes from Hapkido training i just love Hapkido so much (laughs) that uh I try to incorporate that concept mastery into into the Taekwondo program, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, more than just repetition, let's break down these movements, analyze what we're really doing, like biomechanically speaking, and apply it from the same situations with different attacks, or maybe instead of ending this one with a shoulder lock, uh, there's something in the way, and you don't want to murder your opponent. So let's change this and see if we can end it on an armbar. Like we'll take these concepts from the self defense combos
0: and kind of chuck them at the wall and see if they stick. Right? right, and and they do they do stick. Like the it's good stuff, man. Yeah, and that's what I want is that people to play around with them. They're they're there not as set curriculum specifically, uh, but as starting points so that people understand what they're for in the forms and then you can adjust however you need like I said I'm constantly making tweaks to them uh, not just as curriculum but per person some people like you said just they physically can't do this one movement that's fine as long as the, the idea is there that's all that really matters so you can add to them all you want you can adjust them they're just there to help strengthen and deepen their understanding of the movements in the taekwondo in general but specifically their forms yeah yeah and man i need to just hop on a greyhound and come visit you for a week one time (laughs) (laughs) it it, it's amazing to me um you know we, we talked about this uh briefly uh through text the other day um my experience with Burrell Martial Arts, first of all, I started with you guys before it was called that. Um, yeah. You know, it was just the Burrell Martial Arts,
1: or, uh, Wayne Martial Arts Center, mm-hmm. um, back when, before Roskins retired. Yeah. And, I mean, I had a lot of fun, right? Mm-hmm. But this, this, this thing we got going now is incredible. And to me, like, it's a travesty that you and I haven't trained together in person yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I do have to, uh, kind of be on the move here. I have some things I got to get accomplished in the next half an hour or so. So is there, uh, one last kind of point that you want to, uh, you want to hit on to, to wrap this thing up here? I, I have time to mm-hmm. talk about probably one more thing. Uh,
0: it's up to, I'll, I'll give you an option here and you can pick a third that I don't even ask, but, uh, there's two things that I tend to talk about, uh, like usually when Brent's here, we'll we'll talk about this uh, at length because we have fun with it. Uh, One is, what were you, is there something you were taught uh, early on that was just horribly wrong that you look back now and go, oh jeez, like, I can't believe they tried to describe it that way to me, like it it was just completely wrong. Uh, Or any, uh, Actual situations where you had to use self-defense and techniques, uh, and what your experience was with that. So either one of those, or if you want to make up your own question, that's fine too. Uh, I can actually kind of hit both of them mm-hmm. um, briefly.
1: Um, I'll start with the latter, just because that one's easy to answer. Uh, I live in a very like pseudo-conservative libertarian community, you know, uh, in south central Wyoming mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I live in a small town okay? my, the population of my town is about 3,500 right mm-hmm. um, and it's a lot of you know libertarian doomsday preppers hotshots, <laughs> uh, you know rednecks whatever yeah um I can't go out and enjoy a drink on a Saturday night at a specific bar in town because I have a reputation here. First of all, I'm the blind guy who wears (laughs) sunglasses at night. Second of all, I'm the martial arts guy in town. It is very difficult for me to go enjoy a drink at kind of the the sports bar, I guess, in town Mm -hmm. without some young buck with some shit to prove uh, that's heard about me around town. That you know wants to do something dumb, mm-hmm. and um, you know my, my verbal de-escalation skills are because uh, I, I worked in mental health for years, right? Yeah. Uh, with uh, a lot of adults with, paranoid schizophrenia and manic bipolar and uh, etc. So my verbal de-escalation skills are pretty top notch. Yeah. I can I can verbally diffuse most situations. Um, that's not always the case. I'm not going to go into super detail um uh, so I'm leading with this because it ties into the things I was taught that don't make sense. Yeah. Um, I, I've been in a handful of scraps. I'll put it that way. Yeah. And um, you know, in in the, and I like the way Brent worded this in one of the last episodes. Um, I can verbally deescalate most things. Otherwise, I'm pr- I'm a pretty defensive. Um, reactor right I don't I don't start fights why would you mm-hmm. especially when you you know it, it it's possible for a person to um, you know if, if you get if you get legal consequences for being involved in a physical altercation and you you really mess a dude up mm-hmm. you know and and your small town Wyoming court judge knows that you have training, <laughs> and the dude that you annihilated doesn't. Yeah, it's probably not going to end well for you. Yeah. No. Um, so I just go out of my way to avoid it, right? I'm not a hot shot. I'm confident, but you know, my poop smells as bad as anybody else's does. <laughs> um, but something that kind of plays into that that people don't understand often, right, is kind of a law of physics when you hit something. It hits you back with the same amount of force that you hit it with. That's the whole con. One of the concepts of sine wave, right? That's why yep. we, we take these extra steps to optimize the power. Uh, I was taught very early on um, in in blanket karate is what I'll call it <laughs> uh, that if your technique is perfect and, and you know. Yeah, the point is, you can become a one punch man, right? You yep. punch somebody in the face and it knocks them out, and you'll <laughs> walk away with your head held high, and blah, blah, blah. Okay, first of all, unless you're insanely lucky, your first punch isn't going to knock anyone out. No. Second of all, I don't know if uh, you viewers at home uh, have been privy to this secret ancient martial arts information. Punching someone hurts, okay. <laughs> If you've ever punched somebody in the forehead, or the temple, or the jaw, okay, teeth, ouch, right? Punching Mm -hmm. things hurts, and to assume that you have the wherewithal to defend yourself effectively, having not conditioned yourself to know what it feels like to hit something, okay? Get that out of the way before you have to use it, because it will shock you more than you think. (laughs) (laughs) Um. And the other thing, okay, can we talk just, this is kind of where I want to end things on this conversation, Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm interested to hear your feedback because I used to hear this all the time, and I still hear it all the time from uh, people in the military and other martial arts trainers. What are your thoughts on someone who approaches you, and tells you that they're a black belt in something,
0: and their hands are legally registered as lethal weapons. Yeah, I've done an article on this. Uh, it's uh, ridiculous. Um, that I don't it doesn't know. If, exist. No, I, and that's that's what was so hilarious it, in the article I wrote on. I, I have a series that I'm writing right now: uh, myths and misconceptions on martial arts, and that was one of the first ones I wrote up because it's just hysterical to me. And you know, with You know, Roskins, he's law enforcement. And if anybody, and he knows criminal justice, that's what he went to school for. So if anybody knew about that, it would have been him. And so when I got my black belt and that didn't happen, it was pretty obvious. And (laughs) then one day I was teaching, and this was when I was probably 17, maybe 18. I I know it was in high school, because I remember who was there that day. It was another student that, uh, I went to school with, and we were in the same class. And he had come in as a supposed black belt, and supposedly had uh, that he was trained from his father, who was supposedly a ninth degree, ninth degree, but has no, you know, uh, certifications whatsoever. So it, it was crap. But nonetheless, uh, he thought he knew everything. And another student who was a green belt with us at the time, uh, they were talking about that. And I'm, this is after class, and I'm closing up, and but we always just chatted after class, and that's the conversation it went into, and I was just listening because I I knew the answer to this, but one's like, yeah, uh, you know, you know, you don't have to register for to get your hands registers a lethal weapon uh, at black belt, and I kind of giggled to myself because it's crap, but they uh, they kept discussing it, and the one kid's like yeah, I remember when I had to go do that. My dad made me do it when I was younger and you know, it was to keep me out of fights and I'm just listening and trying not to bust out laughing. And then the other guy, who was a green belt, was like, yeah, I remember how to go do it. And I'm like, wait, you're not even a black belt. And this, this conversation that went on for, it felt like an hour. And going back and forth about this certainty that they both have this. <laughs> it's just, it's crap. I, I, it's a blatantly lie. It's it's, it's hilar- hilarious to me because it's something that you can so easily learn about and know that it's crap, but people yeah, still believe the it. The only thing they, they do, and it, it, it's ridiculous how many people believe it too, right? Like, yeah. The only thing remotely close to that that actually exists, right, is uh, if you have been convicted of. Uh, domestic abuse or assault right violent crimes and mm-hmm. you're you're you know post sentencing or you got off on on uh,
1: probation or whatever it is um a, a convicted violent offender in certain circumstances will get a slip of paper that they're required to carry in their wallet by law that basically says if you get busted for a violent a violent crime we're throwing the book at you mm-hmm. um it has nothing to do with assault with a deadly weapon or anything like that it's it's a it's a piece of paper that says hey if you catch this person doing something violent punish them to the full extent of the law. It has <laughs> nothing to do with weapons or registration or you know it just it just kills me. And
2: hey okay, I hold my students to a ridiculously high standard anyway. Like I want my students to be good people. And mm-hmm. if I find out that you're not a good person there's going to be consequences for that. Especially okay. Uh, I've been an instructor for 14 years. I've never promoted a black belt. I've Mm -hmm. never done it. Um, Not that
1: I haven't had opportunity to. I've just never done it. Um, Largely in part because if you are the kind of person to make up such a ridiculous story like you physically went to your local law enforcement office and registered your hands as lethal weapons if you're going to feed that line of crap to my face and blatantly lie mm-hmm. uh, I don't want you
2: to have my signature on your black belt certificate get bent yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's you what
0: makes what think it think tough about <laughs> uh, promoting black belts is you know our signatures on the bottom of that page that says you're qualified and I have to make that distinction going are they? And if something happens, it could come back to me. I, it may not, but I just assume it will. So I have to know that my black belts are solid on every level and good people and are not going to cause problems, but also can deal with the problem if it comes up. And that's, that's my bottom line when I'm promoting a black belt, which is few and far between. Yeah, it's, it's crazy and that's that's a good a good final point hey those those of you listening um, all six of you are with us <laughs> might be eight might um, be eight yeah, yeah. Well, all of my students are going to listen because uh I told them that we're doing this and they're super stoked because uh you know they're all interested in in you
2: know kind of my background and where my training came from yeah uh, one, one of my students has had the chance to meet Mike we went down to Nebraska and caught a, a class with him, nice. and uh, I, I scared one of his mosquito students so bad that they didn't come back, and I feel kind of bad about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I'll tell you that story
1: uh, maybe in another episode or off mic or something, whatever. Yeah. Um, but, but to anybody that might be listening, you know, if you're a practitioner of martial arts, whether you have a black belt or you're working towards, you uh, know, one or you're close to it, whatever the case may be. Uh, guys it's so important that you realize how hard a decision it is for us to give you one Mm -hmm. because you know when you when you you know not even just the black belt the patches on your uniform right like you guys not only represent yourselves outside of class but you represent your fellow students and you represent the instructor that you work under and the instructors that taught them and you know the entire lineage of of our martial arts history is represented by every student we have Yeah. and just know like we're not going to give you a black belt you're going to take it from us because that's a hard decision to make and once you've got it we can't take it away from you so it's really on you to know maintain the standards outside of class that we hold you to in class because at the end of the day anybody can be fooled and anyone can put on an act right uh you know you know people like you and I did we've seen all kinds of people and probably have a, a pretty reasonable bullshit detector mm-hmm. right yeah but every once in a while you know nobody's perfect one's gonna slip by mm-hmm and it's always unfortunate when it happens. I've seen it happen. Just know it. It's really if you if you have that black belt, right, and you're still training or aren't still training, it doesn't matter. That that means something, and you represent a lot more people than just yourself. Be the kind of person that's worthy of that of that accomplishment, because there are a lot of pe- There are enough people in the world that have you know. High level black belts, even. It doesn't matter what level, high level, low level, first degree, second degree, fourth degree, I don't care. Be the kind of person that deserves it because there are just by the nature of belt mill schools and crappy instructors, and, you know, there are enough people that have black belts that don't deserve them. I don't want any, I don't want to be responsible for adding to that problem. Correct.
0: I agree. That's, uh, it's it's a tough one to to convince students of that we have a high standard for a reason. I don't care if you did your form perfectly. That, that's not enough. There, there's so much more beyond it. And like you said, uh, it, you're representing everybody. And you know, there's a reason why I'm still involved with the stuff back in Nebraska and Mike's schools, and why I'll get on him about something about not knowing a technique or that he's not doing a certain one. And part of me wants to stay out of it. Part of me says, no, my name's on this thing, too. (laughs) And I need to make sure every student is up to par, even if I'm not the one training them. So I think that's a a good note to, uh, to leave on for this podcast. All right. Well, thanks for your time, Dan. I know we, have, we had some scheduling issues. I'm on vacation right now, and I, I literally got home today. And then I had some family stuff come up. We finally got it in, <laughs> and I think we had some really juicy conversation. And I just, I really, I can't thank you enough for for having me as a guest. I hope we can do this again sometime. Um, yeah. It was just a blast, and I hope everybody that listens, you know, gets at least one nugget of helpful information rather than. Two, two dudes just rambling at each other. (laughs) Hopefully, they come away. There's something worth taking away.
2: (laughs) I'm sure there will be.